Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. In this episode, our guest, Kyle Prevo, is going to take us through how much we need to retire as Canadians and how much can we sustainably withdraw from our portfolio to not run out of money once we retire. If you are a longtime listener of the show, then by now you would have definitely heard of the 4% rule, which helps answer these two questions. But the 4% rule was created by Americans for Americans. So how do all those findings and statistics apply to us Canadians? And if you are new to this show, then don't worry, we'll go through what the 4% rule is and the many caveats that exist with it that we should keep in mind as Canadians. You're also going to learn by how much can you increase the amount that you withdraw from your portfolio when you retire so that you can keep up with inflation. And for those like myself that don't like how rigid the 4% rule is and would rather adjust their spending year to year depending on how the markets perform, i.e. taking out more during the good times and less when the markets are down, Kyle discusses what sort of structures he has found to work well for that. Now, just to give you a bit of a background on Kyle and his area of expertise, Kyle is the founder of the Canadian Financial Summit, and he and I have been co-hosting the summit together for the past two years. He's also a longtime personal finance columnist. You've probably seen a lot of his work over at Money Sense, and he's been in the National Post, CBC News, The Globe and Mail, and many others. Most recently, he is also the creator of the Four Steps to a Worry-Free Retirement, the first online course for Canadian retirement planning. He has over a decade and a half of experience at this point when it comes to teaching personal finance, and I was actually part of the test group for his Four Steps to a Worry-Free Retirement course, and I can personally say that it's really, really good. I'm not getting paid to promote it or anything like that. I just think that he's built an incredible valuable resource specifically for Canadians. And I want to help them out wherever I can, as it's something that I wish I had when I hit my financial independence number. And it's something that I desperately want my parents to go through as they enter their retirement as well. I hope you check it out and give them your support. And the link to check it out is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash Kyle. And that will take you right to the course. And then now two more really, really quick announcements. First, I wanted to invite you to join me for free again at the Canadian Financial Summit this year. It's a fully online educational event. You can stream all the talks for free. It starts this October the 18th, 2023. So it's about a week from when this episode launches. And you can get free tickets to stream the talks for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash summit. We have over 40 speakers this year. There are already over 22,000 Canadians registered for the event, and we'll be covering investing, real estate, financial planning, early retirement, and much, much more. We've got some really high-profile guests again this year, including Rob Carrick from The Globe and Mail, some of the top writers from Money Sense, some of the most well-known financial planners in Canada, including Jason Heath and Ed Rempel, along with some of the largest Canadian personal finance bloggers and writers like Ellen Roseman, Rob Engin, and Mark Seed. I hope to see you there, and I'll be speaking there as well. And that link to register and stream the talks for free again is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit, S-U-M-M-I-T. 
And last but definitely not least, if you have kids, I recently did an interview slash guide on RESPs here in Canada. I was a guest over at ETF Market Insights, a really great weekly show that you should check out. And that entire interview slash guide is now available for free on YouTube. I strongly recommend you check it out, especially if you don't have RESPs set up or optimized for your kids yet as there is definitely a very efficient and inexpensive way to do it, but also some very costly ways of doing it in Canada, particularly if you're currently signed up to or are considering one of those RESP group plans. There are definitely some things to be careful of when it comes to those. So if you have kids or maybe you want to contribute to someone else's kids' education to help them get that $7,200 of free grant money from the Canadian government, then you can check out the recent interview plus another educational presentation that I did on RESPs over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash RESP. It's totally free. I'm, nothing's being sold on them or anything like that. It's just something that I think is really valuable for us Canadians to know if you have kids or if you want to contribute to a kid's education. So again, that link for those free resources is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash RESP. All right, thanks for sticking around for the big announcements. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Kyle, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Cornell. Uh, Kyle, when it comes to figuring out how much we need to retire, we often hear about the 4% rule. Yet a lot of the research out there on the 4% rule was created by Americans for Americans. In your research and the interviews that you've done, how well have you found the 4% rule to apply to Canadians? And please maybe also briefly define the 4% rule just for anybody that's maybe new to this whole thing. Yeah. So the 4% rule is kind of, in short, it's the best solution or rule of thumb that we've come up with to address what I think is actually the most difficult problem in personal finance, Cornell. The deeper I got into this thing this year and, and reading all the journal articles and the blog posts back and forth between various experts, the more I realized it is really hard to solve the problem of how much can we take out of our nest egg or our investment portfolio each year in retirement while being either 100% sure or pretty sure that we're never going to run out of money. And of course, depending what assets that investment portfolio is invested in, how long you live, all these different things change as well as you have to, to some point, allow for human behavior in terms of investment decisions, because obviously a lot of the time we as human beings don't make the optimal choices in terms of asset allocation. And so all these different things, all these different variables come together. And it's a really, really hard question to answer. It's a way harder question to answer than what should I invest in? Or what should I invest in as I'm working? That's a much easier, you know, you cut costs, you diversify, and then you're playing on the margins with small little hacks here and there, or you know, brokerage fees or what have you, but that's a much easier solution or how to budget. Again, these are like cut and dry. The 4% rule is our best rule of thumb. And I, I like to refer to it right off the bat as the 4% plus inflation rule, just so that right off the bat, we've got inflation in there and we understand exactly what we're talking about. And the idea came from a guy named Bill Bengen. There was also another study called the Trinity study that came about at the same time. And what they did is they looked at the US stock and bond markets. And they said, as long as your portfolio had at least 50% bonds in it and you rebounced, what was the maximum amount that you could withdraw each year in a 30-year retirement without completely depleting your portfolio? 
And so basically what it ends up being is we don't got to really worry about the good years. What it ends up being is when you backtest, hey, if I retired right before the Great Depression happened, or if I retired right before that really extended bad period in the 60s into the 70s, what would have what would have happened to my portfolio? How much could I have taken out and still been sure? So that's what this rule was created for. It was created to be a very cautious rule. It assumes that you were relatively fee efficient and it said, okay, how much can I take out and, and not eat dog food when I'm 80 years old? So that's, that's maybe a, a long definition, but I think it needed some context because this conversation we're about to have, Cornell, I feel like there's levels to it. Mm-hmm. And probably some of your listeners are familiar with the 4% rule mm-hmm. and some of them aren't. And there's like, there's kind of like you can get 85, 90% of the benefit without going into these details. But if you're, I know you yourself are an engineering background. If you're a very detail oriented individual, there's several levels of like research and math that you can rabbit holes that you can go down on this thing in terms of like solidifying your own confidence, the 4% rule will work. And so before we get quite into that level of geekiness, I just wanted to to kind of paint the picture on like how complicated this thing actually can be when you introduce all these different variables in terms of life expectancy and glide paths and asset allocation. Now to answer your specific question about Canadians, and these days, I would actually recommend that no matter where you live, you have a diversified portfolio. So therefore, the 4% rule in theory should work no matter where you are in the world. Now, I know that depending what country you're in, there's different portfolio theories that say you should have a little bit over-representation of your host country. The bottom line is that Wade Fowl, who I would say is probably the primary source these days on the 4%, uh, he, he looked at if each country had done this and he basically found that Canada was a solid bet that the 4% rule would have worked using Canadian equities over the last 90 years, Canadian equities and Canadian bonds. And actually, realistically, if your country has not been on the losing side of a world war and, or if you weren't Japan, Japan is this crazy one-off where valuations went up to hundred X future earnings and. So basically, if you were in Japan in the 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you and you didn't lose a world war, the 4% rule has worked for you or pretty close. Yeah, that, that's really good. So in your own investments, or if you were, let's say, speaking to your parents in Canada, helping them with their retirement, that kind of a thing, is the 4% rule what you would use for yourself and for them? And it sounds like from your answer that you would not make any sort of adjustment where you'd say, oh, 4%, yes, that's using U.S. data. You, U.S. analysts have done this. For Canada, we should increase it to this or decrease it to that. It sounds like that doesn't really apply in your opinion to us because it should be sufficient the way it is. That's, that's right. I don't think there's anything Canadian specific that I would change, Cornell. I think there's a bit of a broader debate in terms of whether the 4% plus inflation rule versus like the 3.7% plus inflation rule or the 4.5% plus inflation rule with some variable spending strategies. I think there's some valid debate in there, but I don't believe that debate is specific to Canadians. Now, this gets a little trickier when you start talking about like high net worth retirements, where if your 4% is a million a year, versus my 4%, which, you know, is more in that 40000 to $60,000 range, Canada's tax differences at that point would obviously play into, play into the fact that the, the late stage tax planning aspect of how much money will I get in my pocket. But 
you know, if you're dealing with a million a year, I'm not too worried about you. You'll, you'll probably be all right. You probably have smaller and maybe larger financially problems than, than I'm, I'm coming up with here. The other thing I wanted to emphasize right off the bat here, Cornell, is that when I say 4% plus inflation, again, a lot of your listeners might be quite familiar with this, but the idea is if I, if I have a million dollar portfolio, the first year I take out 40,000. Second year, I would say whatever the inflation was, I would go up by that amount. So if it was, you know, obviously 1% of 40,000 would be 400, right? So if it were say 3%, I would add $1,200. So I would take out $41,200 in year two. So I should be able to buy that same basket of goods and services. And that's why this rule was created that way to, because right away people go, well, 40,000 isn't going to be worth the same amount in 30 years as it is right now. And you're just, you know, you're, you're headed off a cliff because you don't understand. And it's like, no, this, that's what this rule was created for, was to allow for inflationary increases each year. It's just that obviously the vast majority of the time, hopefully your, your stock and bond portfolio has went up faster than inflation has. And just to clarify as well, when you talk about these inflation adjustments, it's whatever it was that year, right? So even when we had that really high inflation year, you, you still use that higher number. You're not using some historical average. Like let's say a lot of people will say 2% is kind of the one to use because that's what the Bank of Canada likes to target. So you're saying, no, we're not using what they try to target or maybe what's around the historical average. We're using the actual inflation that was incurred and we use that as the adjustment year to year. Is that correct? That's correct, Cornell. And that's an important distinction. There are You'll run into some people who have a different definition of the 4% rule, which do have like set 2 to 3% withdrawal rates, but that's not what the initial rule was made up for. And, and I don't like that, that style because as you just pointed out, that's not how real life happens. So like, let's say, you know, last year, I'm not sure what the CPI came in at, probably 6 to 7%. Do you know off the top of your head, Cornell? No, like when I saw last time, I, I think I saw 7% somewhere there. I haven't monitored too closely, but yeah, it was definitely a lot more than the, you know, 2% that we often hear being sure target. And what we're used to just over the past several years, right? That was kind of- So let's say you retired that. the year before, you took out your 40, 7%, just doing some back of the envelope math, there's 2,800. So then you'd be looking at uh, $42,800 that you'd be withdrawing in year two, even though that's a substantially bigger chunk than your 40,000. The idea is that if history comes close to repeating itself, as long as we don't have something worse than the Great Depression, you should be okay. And I, and when I talk about the 4% rule, I always say, and if we have something worse than the Great Depression, I mean, there comes a point where if, if you're planning, constantly planning for something worse than that, and even with modern monetary policy, I'm not saying we got it perfect, but I would say we're a lot better than we were in the, the nine, early 1900s. That is acceptable risk level to me. And I guess everyone will have their own different opinion on risk. For sure. Yeah, I've, I've heard the good argument of, or an argument that I agree with, where you don't want to be solely planning around these black swan events necessarily. Because if you do that, sure, you might feel some security because you change your portfolio so that you don't get hurt as bad. But then there's such a low probability of happening, whereas much more likely it's going to be a lot better than that. And so now you're missing out on all this extra you know, money you could have had, let's say, by being more you know, in equities, things like that, because, oh, I'm protecting myself from this black swan. Okay, but in doing so, you left so much money on the table because you wanted this ultra level of protection that has a very, very low probability of coming uh, through, of actually coming through. Do you agree with that sort of 
mentality, mindset, way of thinking of it? A hundred percent. But I will say in my head with my particular psychology, Cornell, the money actually isn't the bigger sacrifice. It's the opportunity cost of time that is actually the bigger sacrifice. And I, I know you and I have discussed kind of anecdotally at times that I find that the very cautious people that always want to argue, Ben Felix and I, I think, have had a couple go-rounds about this. The people that are very cautious, we don't disagree with each other's math, but we simply say, I simply say, okay, look, what's the worst case scenario on this side of things? And, and maybe that is actually, now that I think of it, a bit of a difference in terms of Canada versus the USA, not in the impact of the 4% rule, but in the worst case scenario, like to share a personal story, I visited my grandfather the other day. My grandfather has been living with dementia now for six, seven years. He, it, it is kind of the worst case scenario in terms of financial projections and because he's in great health. Uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't know enough about dementia to know exactly what his quality of life actually is, to be honest. But in terms of what I can see, his physical surroundings, he is completely dependent on the government. And it's, it's a pretty solid worst case scenario. Like he's got a good day planned out. His meal plans are really solid. The nurses are quite nice there. I, I, I really don't know many places around the world that I've seen that have a better setup for their advanced elderly people that are depending on society. So if that's our worst case scenario, and I know people have other anecdotes where they've been in, you know, subsidized retirement living, assisted living homes where they are not as well taken care of. But all I know is the few folks that I visited personally, the worst case scenario of running out of money when you're 90 years old or 88 years old, that seems to me, honestly, that seems okay. It doesn't seem awful to, uh, to, to everything I've seen. And maybe people will disagree with me on that. On the flip side, the opportunity cost of working like five or six years more than you have to just so you can be like completely cautious that you'll be okay when you're 90 and the Great Depression hits or whatever the case may be. I just think that's not a good opportunity risk. And, and again, to share another personal anecdote, as I'm researching this course this year, I'm putting everything together. One of my good childhood friends was diagnosed with like very aggressive bone cancer. And it's, it's like, it's tragic. And I just think like, you know, there's again, a low chance that that, that something like that could hit me in my mid thirties, forties, probably even fifties. But that risk that I worked more years than I had to given my limited time on this planet, that risk to me, when I look at the opportunity cost is massive, especially if you have a young family, like she does that opportunity cost is that is the far bigger worry for me. That uh, now, if you love your job and you really feel that your job, every single hour of it is, you know, gives gives a uh, great improvement to your life, increases your, your uh, value in life, then, then great. Then you don't have to really worry about any sort of retirement. But I don't know too many people like that. I think there's a lot of people that would like to scale way back or look at some aspect of early retirement. So that's a very long roundabout uh, way of answering your question, Cornell. But I think there's a, there's a math money aspect to the 4% rule and how cautious you want to be with it. And then there's the opportunity cost of life. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating way of looking at it. I, I've always viewed it as on more the financial opportunity cost side, but you're right. The more impactful one does sound like the, hey, I had to work and I ended up working an extra five years when I didn't really want to, to get that extra level. And how much can you do in five years? There's, there's so much, right? And whether it's spending time with your elderly parents or spending more time with your children, I, I like your way of looking at it more than my own, for sure. I think that's, that's a really good way. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. 
All right, I want to give a big shout out to Passive for sponsoring this episode. They are free to use and are literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments. If you've been investing for any period of time, you know how important rebalancing your portfolio is as that's what allows you to consistently buy low and sell high with your investments as well as ensure that you aren't taking on any additional unnecessary risk. Now, as critical as rebalancing your portfolio is, it's actually a manual and annoying labor-intensive process as to do it correctly, you have to log into each of your household's investment accounts and do manual data entry on a spreadsheet to figure out how much to buy of each investment every single time that you have money to invest. And there's always the chance that you make a mistake and miscalculate something when doing it yourself on a spreadsheet. So these days, when I have money to invest, I simply log into Passive, I immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio, and Passive automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target across all of my household's accounts. Then in a couple of clicks, I can have Passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. I'm also able to see how my entire household's investment portfolio is doing across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all my accounts. So they have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Quest Trade user like me, you also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments. They saved me many dozens of hours when I'm managing and optimizing my portfolio. So definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And now back to the show. Are there any other caveats that you think we should factor in Because I think a lot of people, they'll look into the 4% rule and all the different caveats and how you can tweak things and adjustments and things of that nature. But are there any other adjustments that you think are necessary considering the fact that we are Canadians? You mentioned the healthcare one, which I think is a big one, right? Because in the US, they have to pretty much pay for everything unless you have the insurance. And so that's obviously a really big difference between Canada and the US. So for us, one may argue that we could even be a bit more aggressive because we don't have as big of a burden as people in the US do when it comes to healthcare and being taken care of. Are there any other things that you think we should factor in as Canadians when we go down this rabbit hole of researching 4% rule and how to tweak it for our own needs? Yeah, real quick, I guess, Cornell, I should explain. I I don't like factoring in CPP and OAS in the 4% rule. I prefer to calculate that completely separately. So I'm so confident. And after my research this year, I'm even more confident I read so many, you know, guys who are like brilliant accountants and actuaries, and I am certain that barring some sort of global meltdown nuclear war, the CPP will be just fine. I, I, I don't un- understand the folks that are constantly saying it won't be there for me. My father was one of these people and he's been collecting it three years now, and he is still <laughs> amazed every single month, Cornell, when that money is auto deposited in his account. And he's like, I never dreamt it would be here. So I am sure it's like, it's good out to 90 years right now. I'm not worried about it. OAS, I would say I'm like 0.5% worried that it might be reduced or pushed back. 
And, and again, this is, it's so low on my worry list that like, it's not relevant to me. I'm much more worried about driving from A to B tomorrow than I am about the OAS because I just think it's so political suicidal to touch OAS. So that's different than the US because their social security, I'm not an American expert, but their social security is underfunded substantially. And I think there is a very high likelihood that some, it'll still be there in some form or fashion. But I think what could happen is that there's an index freeze on it so that it doesn't go up with CPI or it's reduced by 10% or that it's kicked out another year or so in terms of when you can apply for it. I think there's a pretty good chance that some adjustments will be made there, but not in Canada. So if you were factoring that into your 4% rule, I guess that makes sense. But as you just said, there is that broader social safety net in Canada. And again, you know, if you've got a, a pretty solid average CPP plus your OAS plus some of the other government guarantees that we have for for some of our elderly, I agree that it just tilts that opportunity cost. The worst case scenario is just a little bit less bad or a lot less bad, actually. So you can feel even more comfortable with the 4% rule, in, in my opinion, as a Canadian. But again, I prefer to factor the 4% as just my portfolio, just my investable assets and calculate it separately. I just find that it's easier. Otherwise, you got to get into some really tricky covariable math, and I prefer to just not do that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then we talked about the inflation adjustment for us Canadians. When you're doing this for yourself or let's say for your parents, where do you go online to get that number, that annual adju- inflation adjustment when doing your financials? I mean, banking use the CPI. And every, every study that I've seen uses CPI. And so I would probably just use the, the headline CPI. Now that's not to say that it's not kind of useful and kind of quirky fun to know your own personal inflation rate. So for example, most retirees, I shouldn't say most, I think, but I think most probably own their own home or have the option to sell their own home or, or some, something like that. So that would obviously then completely change your personal interest rate basket from what the CPIs is. But I haven't read any research on how that would actually affect your 4% rule because it could cut in either direction, right? Like if the other types of, if say like energy and groceries were the main drivers of the CPI and housing was actually a deflator, your personal CPI might actually be higher. But no, to directly answer your question, I just, the only thing I've seen use the CPI and that's what I would Mm. recommend. And CPI, as far as I know, Statistics Canada calculates this, publishes it, it's public information, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's in all, if you just click the news tab of your Google feed, you'll see like when it comes out, all the newspapers write about it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That's good. Now, for those that don't like how rigid the 4% rule is and would rather adjust their spending year to year, depending on how the markets perform, what sort of structures have you found to work well for that? So here I'm talking about things like variable percentage withdrawal rules. You mentioned Wade Fowl. He's got a whole book on all these different other ways of figuring out how much you can take out of your portfolio if you're not just fully following the 4% rule. Can you speak to that a little bit on your end? Okay. So this is the part of the podcast where we're going to get super nerdy. And so if you've been listening up to this point and been like, okay, 4% rule, I'm just going to tell you, just use 4%. Like seriously, just, just use it. It's, I've looked at it. It's solid in Canada. The chances it's not going to work are pretty low. Honestly, the chances that like you're going to get some kind of crazy personal event out of left field that will affect you more than the variances in this 4% rule are greater than the 4% rule failing. Remember, this thing was created to survive the Great Depression. So like we're, we're on solid footing here. Now, 
that it, that sometimes isn't how life goes and you are statistically much more likely to end up with more money than you started with than you are thrown out of money. So we get into this idea that, well, can I spend more or can I spend less? And it's, it's crazy the degree to which there is intense, passionate people on either side of this thing. And they play with numbers in weird ways. So the three folks, you mentioned Wade Fowl. Bill, Bill Bankin, it's funny. He, he hasn't actually done a ton of new research. He just kind of gives broad podcasts on uh, the 4% rule. He's probably made a great career out of it. So the other two guys that I really read a lot of, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing their names here, but Michael Kitsis has done a lot of work and some of it with Wade. And the other guy is a, a fellow by the name of Karsten Jeske. And I'm going to be interviewing Karsten actually at the Canadian Financial Summit this year. I'm, I'm pretty proud uh, of that because awesome. he hasn't done a, he hasn't done a ton of, ton of work. You might see him uh, referred to as Big Earn from his website, Early Retirement Now. And uh, Karsten has done like just some incredible oh, yeah. work on withdrawal strategies. Like I would say he actually ended up being my main source and, he, and he's my main thought. And if you have the patience to read through. Oh, I would say like, it's got to be up to like four or 500,000 words at this point mm -hmm. on withdrawal strategies, yeah. then just read his front to back. But I'll do my best to summarize kind of his criticisms of it and, and some of the other folks. So when you look at variable weight withdrawals, I know some people have said you can take this thing all the way up to five, five and a half percent, which obviously sounds great working. You have a, a much smaller pool of money that you would then need to, to retire and you could retire much earlier or withdraw a much larger amount each year, if that were true. I was not convinced at all by any of that. I find that when the folks tilt that thing up to four and a half, five percent, especially early in retirement, there's, they say like, well, most of the time market recessions only last two to three years, which is true. But then we're no longer like our failure rate is then climbing to 10, 15, 20%. Everyone's risk profile is different. But to me, once you start getting over 10%, that's something that not a lot of people are comfortable playing with in terms of the worst case scenario. So I don't like that. On the other hand, again, you have folks, I think Ben Felix's quote was like 2.2% once you factor in fees and, and taxation and, and we're very cautious about future market returns. And, and so like it is possible to make a statistical argument for that. I don't agree that at lower income levels, that's even close to accurate in, in my opinion. Assuming you, your country doesn't lose a world war, but yeah. So, okay. In saying all that, that there's a broad range and we're getting super geeky here and you've already tuned out if you don't want to dive into this super deeply, looking at some variable rate, really what all this is about is the first 10 years. That's what all this research is focused on is the first 10 to 15 years of retirement. And it almost doesn't matter if you're talking 30 years, 40 years or 50 years, obviously the further you stretch it out, there is added slight layers of risk in terms of the worst case scenario occurrence. But if you hit the Great Depression at the end of this thing, it doesn't matter because you're going to have built up such a huge pad of excess savings that it's not going to matter. You can see half your wealth evaporate and it's not, you're going to be way, you're going to have way more money than you started retirement with still. It's all about the first 10 years and what they call the sequence of returns risk and various strategies to alleviate that risk. That's what all of this is about in variable rates. I mean, you can, and it is an interesting, once you're like 15 years in, how much can you adjust upward is actually uh, an interesting discussion. But I think most people are more interested in like the worst case scenario and how much can I take out and let's get those first 10 years figured out. So 
basically the, the, the most common one Cornell is, Hey, I'll just work a little more, spend a little less. I think I've come a little way around on this. I used to be like, yeah, that's the great, that's a great one. And I think it's still good to have flexibility and it's still a realistic way to look at it. Cause most people these days don't hit 40, 45 of 65 and say, I'm going to stop working cold Turkey. Mm-hmm. They earn a little bit. They take a contract. They substitute in their old job. They, you know, decide to help out someone else 10 hours a week or something. So that is kind of realistic and, and the retirement spending does tend to be highest in your first 10 years uh, after you retire. But I wouldn't overestimate like some of the, if you look at the late sixties, early seventies asset markets, you would be quote unquote spending less for quite a long time. Like the most prominent one of this is probably Guyton Klinger. And if you Google Guyton Klinger, I think they call it, it's not guide. What do they call it? Cornell, not guide pass. What do they call it? Like bumpers or. Oh yeah. Yeah. The ceilings floors. Are you talking about? Yeah. Ceilings and floors. Sure. And they say like, if, if you're, if your withdrawal for that year is less than this overall amount of your portfolio, you can increase it. And if it's this, then this, then you have to, and basically they don't go into depth on like, okay, well, if, if we actually did this in the worst case scenario in the sixties, or if you retired right before the dot-com crash in the two thousands, you would actually be withdrawing like substantially less than your 4% for like 10 years, 12 years. Um, that's not how most people want to spend the first 10 years of their retirement, spending substantially less than their initial 4% rule. In that case, it's kind of like, well, why even have a 4% rule? So I'm not all that convinced that those two strategies working in concert are completely dependable. Really diving into Karsten's research, I encourage you and, and people who are retiring to think about, because right now we always say, well, you're rolling the dice when you retire. You say, okay, I'm done. I'm done contributing now to my portfolio. I'm going to start taking out. And there's an, an element of luck involved. And that's true. There's no denying it. There's an element of luck involved in that. But <clears throat> you can't predict where the market will go in the short term very well. And in the long term, it's a bit better. But we do have certain metrics, certain valuation metrics that have been more successful than others. The CAPE ratio price to earnings ratio versus average in given markets. And they can tilt things in your favor. And so for most people, like I write in my course, I say, okay, you probably don't want to dive into what the CAPE ratio is. That's totally fine. I call it like the headline test. The more good news you hear about people making money in the stock market, the more scared I'd be about the 4% rule. Because the bigger (laughs) the chances are that you're going to retire at a market peak. So like, if you look at what the head, uh, what the newspapers were saying in 2000, 2007, uh, 2021, if you look at what the newspapers were saying, it was all about people getting rich, right? It wasn't like, don't invest. It was like crypto or hockey cards or uh, NFTs or boring stocks that, that, but you should be putting your money somewhere because everyone's getting rich yeah. right now. That's like, if you look at the CAPE ratio, CAPE ratio, very high at that point, right? But the headline test also meets it. The more sad everyone is, the more depressed everyone is, the more dire everyone is, the more you hear the phrase, this time is different, the better you're, the better off you're going to be. The more sure you can be that 4%, you'll have no problem with it. And basically what that means is you're, you're increasing your chances that you're retiring at a time where the 4% rule will be just fine. And again, refer to Karsten's research on like specific Cape investing odds. 
basically. And he recommends essentially like a, a little bit more savings if you're like up into that nosebleed territory of stocks. And we're, we're coming down from that a little bit. And again, Cape isn't perfect. There's a lot of good criticisms of Cape in the last 30, 40 years. But the idea of like, how far are we from the last bear market? Where are earnings headed? Stuff like this. I think timing your retirement along those lines, along those valuation lines is actually a really good hedge. That's actually how you can add value to a variable strategy, in, in my opinion, that if I retired when the CAPE ratio was low and or headlines were awful, I would be much more, I would be much more okay with spending a little bit more, maybe bumping up to 4.2% or something like this. The other one that I, I see is, uh, you know, have a, have a little pot of money on the side. And I think we're going to talk about this in just a second and, and some of the flexibility and bucket strategies and that. But I think there's, I think there's an argument in the, the 2.2% versus the 5.5% crowd. I think I probably edge mathematically a little more to the 2.2% group. And then in terms of my like work life, opportunity cost model that I just described to you off the top, Cornell, I lean towards get the heck out of the workforce sooner rather than later. So I think where I end up with is if you're looking at like a 50-year retirement and you honestly think you will never work another day, you should probably go to about a 3.7%, which means saving about 27 times rather than 25 times earnings. And I think that degree of flexibility is more valuable the other thing that I would advocate for is some part-time work. And instead of saying like, oh, I'll just, I'll play it by ear. I'll work a little part-time. I say, okay, look, statistically, you're going to spend more in your first 10 years of retirement, no matter what age you are when you retire. So if that's the case, plan to work part-time and only withdraw 3% for your first five years and then reevaluate at the end of those five years. So make your five-year budget based upon what you'll earn as part-time work and a 3% withdrawal rate. And what the vast, vast majority of the time, what will happen is at the end of those years, you will, your portfolio will now be big enough, even with you taking out of it every year, it'll now be big enough where the 4% rule will more than cover what your budget will be. And if you want to keep working, you can. If you don't want to, you can. And I think that is a more responsible way to say, hey, we can add a little flexibility here. The only other flexible way that I really see that is backed up by the evidence is if you have a, what they call fat fire or like a, you've built in a large amount of discretionary spending that you're comfortable with cutting. Then it will also work. Like if you have like say $120,000 each between you and your significant other and you're fine with going down to 80,000 each, then I think you can work in a little more of the Oh, when the markets are down, I can cut my spending by a third. But I just, again, I think that's such a small amount of people, Cornell. I don't know what your thoughts or what your anecdotal feelings are on that. Yeah, for me, I, I definitely find value in having some sort of side income coming in, kind of you know monetizing your passion projects just to provide that extra cushion. Uh, and we've talked about this before, how there's also so all these other benefits as well of doing some sort of productive work and someone from the outside looking in might consider that as, oh, well, you're working, you're not really retired. But hey, if you're doing part-time hours or even less what would be considered part-time hours and you're doing something you're enjoying and it's bringing in some income so that it helps you get through those years you mentioned, like the first 10, especially the first five and that sequence risk, 
I think that's a really good way of doing it as well, because you also do want to have those productive projects. And I talk about this a lot on the show, just for the the mental piece. So the intellectual stimulation, having a creative outlet, you know, it gives you some sort of purpose in life as well, so that you don't default to these like, oh, I'll just try watching all the series that interest me on Netflix, right? And that you can start yeah. building some really negative habits, and then your health can really start to decline both physically and mentally Absolutely. if you're going for this pure leisurely lifetime. 24 seven. It's not a good balance from a mental health and physical health perspective. And so, yeah, that's why I'm really fascinated by these variable draw strategies, because a lot of this 4% rule talk is assuming that you don't work ever, that you don't generate any income ever outside of your investments. But at least from my own experience, and also from interviewing dozens and dozens of people now, or like, well, it's in the hundreds, but a lot that have that have hit phi, they all still do some sort of productive work that generates some income, but it's sort of this like you know cherry on top that lets them spend a bit more. But hey, if things get rough, like we have another Great Depression, then at least they've got that extra piece coming in to help alleviate some of those financial pressures that they may endure. So I, personally, I have found that to be the sweet spot for myself yes. and from the others that I've interviewed. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource that I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and the weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. And now back to the show. I think, honestly, if you look at that, like if you look at working a little more in the case of a Great Depression as the way to bridge that last little bit of, you know, from the very, the very, very, very cautious sub 4% crowd to bridge it up to like, yes, I can be now 100% confident the 4% rule will work for me. I think that's safe. Where I start to get a little squeamish and I was convinced by Carson's research is the folks that say, hey, variable rate spending, no problem. Like Nick Majuli, who I like, I really like Nick's stuff. I've, I've quoted much of it. He wrote this one that was like, oh, if you just follow these spending rules, you can use up to 5.5 or even 7% rule for retirement spending. And then he just goes on to say like this rule, this rule, this rule. And it's like, yeah, but you know what sucks? Like reducing your spending for like 30% for 10 years in early retirement. Like that's not a, that's not something most people want to do. And you glided over that in like one sentence. So I, do, I, I caution people against the idea, like basically really be familiar with if you want to use something super aggressive, like a 5.5% model, you need to be familiar with how long certain stretches in the stock market have been underwater in the past on a real basis, not a nominal basis. So it's not that the stock market, you know, whether you're talking the Dow Jones or the S&P, TSX Composite, it's not that it didn't get back to where it was. It took like four years. But then the problem is it didn't get back to being able to purchase the same amount of goods for like 12 years. And there are a couple instances like that. And so you have to understand that you might have to be working 25, 30 hours a week for like 12 years. 
And, and again, that's not the end of the world for, you know, if you're 45 and you want to say, hey, 5.5%, I'm okay with a 30% fail rate, like 30% chance I run out of money. I'm okay with that risk. I think that's, that's honestly fine. That's a, now you see why there's all these variables and why it's not an easy. But if you're 60 and you want to make 6% withdrawal rate work by saying, oh, no, it's cool. I'm going to follow Guyton Klinger. Oh, that might be a rough first 10 years if you're hitting it at the absolute worst time. Now, the chances are you're not going to hit it at the worst time, but these are all the different, everyone's risk level is different. Risk profile is different. And so you have to look at these different probabilities. But I do agree with you that folks need to find meaning in work and in society in some way. And probably most people will get paid something for that. Maybe it won't be as much as that nine to five grind or, or maybe it will be. But I think Put it this way, I'm cognizant of the fact that I get money from doing stuff online and from talking about this stuff. So for me to say, uh, nobody has to worry about ever finding work or bringing in income as I'm doing it online, I realize that's a little bit ridiculous. So I just want to explain that I'm aware of this phenomenon. All right. I hope you enjoyed this part of the interview. Part two will be up really soon. And don't forget to check out Kyle's course over at Build Wealth Canada ca slash Kyle. And don't forget to get your free tickets to this year's Canadian Financial Summit. I'll be there presenting along with over 40 of some of the top personal finance educators and speakers in Canada. We'll be covering investing, real estate, financial planning, early retirement, and much, much more. I hope to see you there. And that link again to register and stream the talks for free is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash summit. That's buildwealthcanada.ca ca slash summit s-u-m-m-i-t and now i wanted to give a huge thank you to two of our sponsors who apart from my investing course literally keep everything on the show and build wealth canada website free for you our first sponsor is bmo etfs do you know why asset allocation etfs have become so popular asset allocation explains over 90 percent of the variation in the portfolio's quarterly returns so it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification, and they're also low-cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs and you can learn more at bmoetfs.com. I'd also like to thank Passive, the investing tool that I use for my entire investment portfolio. You can get your free account in Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. And you can see my portfolio and what ETFs I buy within Passive over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash portfolio. Passive is literally the number one tool that I consistently use to manage all my investments as it lets me immediately see what I'm holding too much and too little of in my portfolio. And it automatically calculates how much I need to buy of each ETF to get me back to my target asset allocation across all my household's accounts. Then if I want, in a couple of clicks, I can have passive buy the investments that I'm holding too little of across all my and my wife's accounts without me having to log in and out of each account to manually do the trades myself. 
My other favorite feature is to be able to see the performance of my entire household's investment portfolio across all our accounts in just a mouse click instead of manually having to add everything up across all our accounts just to see how we're doing. They have a free account that you can use to try them out. And if you are a Questrade user like me, you can also get their premium account for free. So it's a complete no-brainer. And I've personally been using them for years at this point. So I can definitely vouch for them as they have literally become my number one favorite tool for managing my investments as they've saved me dozens of hours when managing and optimizing my investment portfolio. Definitely check them out. They are a fantastic Canadian company and you can get your free account by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Again, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash free. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 